There was a knock one morning, a man was standing at my door. He said, hello, I'm from Halliburton, have you heard of us before? We'd like to lease your backyard to drill for natural gas. It's called hydraulic fracturing, and it is the very past for a clean energy future above the Marcella Stone. Plus, we'll give you lots of money and a new mobile phone. I said, you are a corporate crook. I don't believe the things you tell, and you can drive right off my property and then go straight to hell. No fracking way. No fracking way. I don't trust corporate salesmen, whatever they may say. No fracking way. 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 And that was an excerpt of David Rovick singing No Fracking Way. You can find that entire song on his album, Big Red Sessions. Welcome to Frack You Very Much, a fracking terrible podcast. If you want to check out all the back episodes of Frack You Very Much or send me a message, just go to frackyouverymuch.com. You'll also find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up, we have a piece written by Elizabeth Miller. This is published at hcn.org. New Mexico's oil fields have a sinkhole problem. On a July morning in 2008, the ground below the southeastern New Mexico began to shift and crack, shooting a huge plume of dust into the air. Within minutes, a massive sinkhole emerged, which eventually grew to roughly 120 feet deep and 400 feet in diameter. Quote, At the time, it was an unfortunate situation, but most people considered it to be a one-off, says Jim Griswold, a special project manager with New Mexico's Energy, Minerals, and Natural Resources Department. But a few months later, in November, Dust once again streamed towards the sky, as another similarly sized sinkhole opened, cracking a nearby roadway. Both holes, and later a third in Texas, emerged at the site of brine wells, industrial wells through which fresh water is pumped into a subterranean layer of salt. The fresh water mixes with the salt, creating brine, which is brought to the surface for industrial purposes. In this case, oil drilling. After the second sinkhole emerged, Griswold's department head gave him a new task. Characterize the stability of the state's 30 other brine wells and report back on where the next crisis might arise. What he found has been a source of near-constant worry for the past decade. While the first two sinkholes opened in remote areas, the next one Griswold discovered could hit the southern edge of Carlsbad, a city of 30,000 people. At this location, the well's role in dissolving the salt and drawing it to the surface had created a cavity wider than it was tall, a situation that destabilizes the ground above, and this particular well was situated near two highways, a rail line, an irrigation canal, a mobile home park, a church, a feed store, and several gas stations. If a similarly massive sinkhole were to open, it could endanger lives, stop road and rail traffic, and pollute groundwater with gasoline from ruptured pipes and storage tanks, or salt water from the well. State officials have been fighting to hold off that fate, but it has taken a decade to research the problem and find funding to fix it. The well's owner, I&W Inc., filed for bankruptcy in 2010, and officials are not pursuing its potential liabilities. Last year, the pieces finally came together, and an unprecedented remediation effort began. But the work unveiled subterranean secrets. The size and shape of the cavity isn't what previous studies suggested, and this means it will be more costly to remediate. No one knows how long it will be, before the ground gives way. 
New Mexico's statewide survey of brine wells gave scientists a rare chance to identify an area in danger of imminent collapse. Most other parts of the country have not been studied as closely. The risk exists there, too. Roughly 35% of the United States is underlain with karst, a landscape characterized by a network of sinkholes and caverns created when groundwater, or the chemicals it carries, dissolves the subsurface geological layers. States and the federal government don't track the damage, making it tricky to pinpoint the frequency and cost of sinkholes. Still, the National Cave and Karst Research Institute, a government-sponsored nonprofit headquartered in Carlsbad, conservatively estimated the damage due to sinkholes at more than $300 million each year. Carlsbad offers an extreme and completely human-caused example of the potential danger of sinkholes and how difficult and costly they are to prevent or mitigate. Any number of human activities can disrupt underground karst, explains Jim Goodbar, who worked for the U.S. Bureau of Land Management as a karst expert for 38 years. Rain gutters and highway runoff trenches can route water to one spot repeatedly, eventually wearing through the Earth's surface, open to cavities below. And pumping large amounts of groundwater can disrupt the water table, which in turn destabilizes karst. Florida is considered the hardest-hit U.S. state, but other sinkhole-prone states include Texas, Alabama, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Pennsylvania. In 2019, scientists used aerial surveys to find a cluster of 19 giant sinkholes, most of them more than 35 million cubic feet in southern China, likely caused by underground rivers in the karst system in which they formed. The big events draw headlines, but minor subsidence events, where the ground slumps slowly into a void, are a more common, constant, and overlooked problem. When Goodbar was with the BLM, he recalls getting one or two calls a year about sinkholes in roads or near pipelines where water was channeled until the ground gave way. Quote, It's a quiet disaster that we just don't see hitting us all at one time in one place, said George Venney, the National Cave and Karst Research Institute's executive director and member of the state-led group overseeing the brine well. Carlsbad sits on the edge of the Permian Basin, an underground geological formation that stretches from southeastern New Mexico to west Texas and accounted for more than 35% of the U.S.'s domestic oil production in 2019. The surrounding desert is lined with rows of pump jacks and the occasional white tower of a drilling rig. Carlsbad's streets, like those in Lubbock, Midland, and Odessa, are crowded with the auxiliary businesses that supply that industry with water, sand, chemicals, and equipment. In March 2009, regulators, technical experts, and industry representatives gathered in Santa Fe and concurred with Griswold's conclusion. The INWL was likely to collapse. In June of that year, the state installed an early warning system. On the highway, drivers pass a yellow and black sign cautioning that the road ahead is subject to sinkhole. On-site sensors monitoring the site are sensitive enough to register distant earthquakes, local rush hour traffic, and, the hope is, rocks falling inside the cavity. That should give hours of notice to stop traffic on the highways and evacuate the area. Quote, I know people who have told me they won't drive along that stretch of highway for fear that they suddenly, suddenly they're in space, falling into a big hole in the ground, Benny says. I think the odds of that are incredibly slim. Were it to collapse, the cost to refill the hole and repair the roads, rail line, and businesses, plus the lost business, freight traffic, crops supplied by the irrigation canal, tourism to the nearby Carlsbad Caverns and Guadalupe Mountains National Parks, and tax revenue, could total $1 billion. Before remediation work began, geophysical data suggested the ground could fail as soon as 2021. Over the last 12 years, researchers worked to illustrate what is impossible to see, 
the size and shape of the cavity itself. A formula correlates how much water has been pumped through a brine well with the volume of the cavity underground, but says little about whether that volume will be distributed in a wide, shallow space that might only cause the ground to sag if it were to collapse, or in a taller cavity that would swallow the highway and irrigation canal. The state has run sonar, seismic, and electrical resistivity studies in search of answers. Likely there is a rubble-strewn chamber, much of it in the cream color of the Salado Formation, the dried footprint of an ancient inland sea. Some of the rocks may have piled up to create pillars and a tangle of corners. Remote sensing studies estimated that the main cavity was roughly 300 feet wide and 700 feet long, and 150 feet tall at its peak. Shortly after Griswold recognized its instability, the well was pumped full of brine and capped with cement and cast iron. That brine has held up the cavern roof, but the surface measurably sank when a small percentage of the brine flowed out and shifts each summer as water drops in the adjacent irrigation canal. Even in natural karst systems, changes in surrounding groundwater can alter the pressure that helps stabilize the system. The ground can fluctuate for a while, but for how long, no one is quite sure. The clock is ticking, but you don't know what the clock is set on, Benny says. Still, some locals are taking things in stride. Maybe it would be different if it were a permanent house, says Charlie Kaiser, who moved from Oklahoma with his wife to work in the Permian oil fields and lived for a while in a fifth wheel parked within sight of the remediation work. But if this thing falls in, he says, gesturing to the RV, I've got insurance. I'll just take it as a sign from God to retire. Yeah, as long as you're not inside when it happens. When INW, which operated the well for 30 years, was pressed to pay for fixing it, the company filed for bankruptcy. Liquidated assets produced $3 million dollars, a small slice of a bill now estimated at above $54 million and growing. But the idea of fixing an invisible, indeterminate potential disaster hit amid the very real pressures of the 2008 economic downturn, when lawmakers scrambling to close a budget gap raided the state's reclamation fund. It took a decade for them to find money to tackle the task. Griswold, whose full-time job now focuses on the Brinewell remediation, was already searching for someone who would take the work on. A global conference of solution miners that specialize in mining materials by dissolving them happened to meet in Albuquerque in 2017, and he presented the problem and invited solutions. The state group overseeing the remediation work settled on what they believed was the most promising plan. They would drill into the cavity and pump out the brine, while at the same time filling the cavity with grout, a mixture of cement, clay, and water. Workers would have to take care not to destabilize the system, otherwise the whole structure would collapse. I imagine it would be sort of like trying to tie your shoelaces while jogging, says Land, with the National Cave and Karst Research Institute. It's obviously something that can be done, and that's what the engineering firm that's got the bid on this is doing. But it's a delicate task. Activity has buzzed since last September. Initially, the goal was to have finished this past summer, but opening up the well to work on it offered a chance to collect new data on its dimensions. The southern portion was more stable than expected and filled quickly. That secured the area near the mobile home park and irrigation canal but the northern end, some of which lies under Highway 285, proved larger than expected. The cost of additional cement mixture would break the state's budget, Venny says. So what they started to do was inject sand. Then the cavity swallowed the quantity of sand expected to fill it to 70%, but remained only 20% filled. Sonar suggests two-thirds of the sand drifted into rubble from a previous internal collapse, instead of filling the void. Quote, It's going to take a hell of a lot of sand to do this, says Benny. 
more than the state's current budget can cover. That's typical, says Randall Orndor, Orndorf, a karst specialist with the U.S. Geological Survey, in the many cases where smaller sinkholes open and the work fills a visible hole. Without being able to see what's underground in a lot of cases, they'll come into it saying, okay, we can grout this, and they'll dig all the soil out around where the sinkhole is, down to the bedrock, and then they start throwing the concrete grout into the hole, he says. In some cases, these are huge, huge caves, and it finally gets too expensive, and they can't do it. Work paused just before Memorial Day, and sonar was run to see how much more sand might be needed. The work resumed and then was suspended again at the end of July, while the state looks for funding. During injection, the efforts cost more than $3 million a month, Griswold said during a September 29 meeting, 2019 meeting, and just as in 2009, the state is dealing with tight finances. Taxes and royalties from the oil and gas industry provide up to 40% of New Mexico's general fund revenue, and lawmakers have had to cut spending after oil prices hit unprecedented lows this spring. Sarah Cottrell Probst, who heads the state's Energy, Minerals, and Natural Resources Department, said during a virtual meeting of the Carlsbad Brine Well Remediation Authority in July that one option is to seek pending congressional funding for reclaiming some of the nation's estimated 2.1 million abandoned oil and gas wells. This is, as she put it, quote, the mother of all reclamation projects. If the ground gives way at any time between now and when the work is done, it could still open into a sinkhole, though likely smaller than it would have been a year ago, now that the southern portion is filled, Vinny says. That work may also have pushed out the timeline of collapse from next year. But there's no guarantee, Griswold says. We need to finish this thing off. And next up, from sinkholes to uh, civil disobedience. This piece is written by Kevin Duggan and is published at brooklynpaper.com. Brownsville anti-fracking activist stormed a local National Grid worksite Thursday morning protesting the utility's ongoing fracked gas pipeline construction and calling out Mayor Bill de Blasio for offering little beyond symbolic support against the controversial project. Quote, Last week we kind of had good news. Some people thought it was good news. Mayor de Blasio announced that National Grid must withdraw from this project. But Mayor de Blasio didn't take no action. So we gonna take our own action said Gabriel Jameson of the environmentalist group Brownsville Residents Green Committee at Junius Street near Linden Boulevard on December 10. His honor joined activists and other elected officials in denouncing National Grid's seven-mile fracked gas pipeline that snakes from Brownsville to Greenpoint last week, but declined to pull city construction permits for fear of embroiling City Hall in a losing legal battle given that the company has the legal right-of-way, a spokeswoman said at the time. But the reasoning coming from the mayor's office did not convince the eastern Brooklyn activists, who took it upon themselves to break into the site, which caused workers to halt construction around noon. The real danger is people being threatened by the pipeline, said protester Anna Somo. The legal concerns don't seem like a valid reason to us. The group also dropped banners from the elevated freight train tracks above Linden Boulevard that read Protect Brownsville, interspersed with photos of locals holding signs saying, I will not be sacrificed. Jameson scolded the mayor for being quick to step in for residents of Manhattan's tonier neighborhoods by moving homeless men out of the impromptu shelter officials set up at the Lucerne Hotel during the pandemic while offering mere rhetoric for working-class black and brown Brooklynites along the pipeline. Quote, When rich people didn't want homeless people in the Upper West Side, he rushed to that. But when it comes to a pipeline in a black and brown neighborhood, he doesn't rush to that, the activist said. 
When it comes to black people and brown people, he gives us symbolic S. So I'm guessing means shit. And for some reason, this uh, author or this publisher won't write out the word. Anti-fracking activists previously broke into two pipeline construction sites and locked themselves to the pipes in Williamsburg in October. But Thursday marked the first such action along the Tubes Brownsville section. The project, officially dubbed the Metropolitan Natural Gas Reliability Project, started in Brownsville back in 2017. Builders have since torn up streets through Bed, Bed, I think Bedford Stuyvesant, although I think that's misspelled, Bushwick and Williamsburg ahead of its final destination, connecting the Maspeth Avenue Depot at the Newton Creek sometime next year. In January, opponents under the coalition No North Brooklyn Pipeline started rallying against the scheme, denouncing National Grid for expanding fossil fuel infrastructure on the backs of ratepayers and Brownsville protesters renewed the call for a public takeover of the utility and for shifting it towards renewable energy sources. Quote, We need more renewable infrastructure. We don't want National Grid taking us back to the 70s, taking us back to the past, said Aid Bobblewhale at Thursday's protest. And next up is a piece written by Reed Frazier and published by WHYY. Dot org. Heart failure patients who live near fracking operations were more likely to be hospitalized than those who live farther away, according to a new study. Researchers at Drexel and John Hopkins studied medical records of 12,000 heart patients in Pennsylvania between 2008 and 2015. The authors reported, quote, significantly increased odds of hospitalization among heart failure subjects in relation to increasing fracking activity in the area near them. Heart failure includes any condition like a heart attack that leads to the inability of the heart to pump enough blood to meet the body's needs. Older patients and those with more severe heart failure, quote, seem particularly vulnerable to adverse health impacts from nearby fracking, the author stated. The study appeared in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. The study was funded by grants from the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, NIEHS, part of the National Institutes of Health. The study's lead author, Tara McAlexander, a postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics, at the Dornsife School of Public Health at Drexel University, said that increased noise, air pollution, and traffic from fracking could all explain the higher levels of heart patient hospitalizations found in their study. Quote, We thought about all these potential exposures and how they might impact heart failure, and pretty much all of them really suggested they would be exacerbated if you were exposed to fracking and you were in that vulnerable state of having heart failure in the first place. The authors reported they did not have data on the diet or lifestyle of the study subjects, but doubted whether the higher hospitalization rates they observed in heart patients living near fracked gas wells could be chalked up to those factors. Joan Casey, assistant professor of environmental health sciences at Columbia University, said in an email, the study, quote, adds to mounting evidence that fracking is related to adverse health outcomes. Casey, who worked with some of the paper's co-authors when she was a graduate student at Johns Hopkins University, but was not involved in the study, said it suffered from the same limitations, quote, of essentially all epidemiological studies of fracking to date. We don't know what component of fracking is responsible. Is it air pollution? Water pollution? Noise pollution? psychosocial stress, something else. Casey also pointed out the study ends in 2015, quote, and so may not reflect current fracking exposures in Pennsylvania. Zach Reinhardt, assistant professor of cardiology at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, said there have been calls for, quote, high quality evidence about fracking and health impacts 
for years. He said the study's statistical model was strong enough to essentially rule out any other causes besides fracking for the increased hospitalizations the authors found. Fracking, quote, really does seem to be associated with hospitalization for heart failure, says Reinhardt, who was not involved in the study. And it doesn't seem like any other factors are explaining that away. Reinhardt said that because fracking plays a big role in the state's economy and energy portfolio, it would be really important to know what about it is causing the problem. You can't dismiss the fact that the natural gas development is a major economic driver, and it's something that's very important to many people's livelihoods, Reinhardt said. So it's really important to find out why is this association there. McAlexander said the study fits with a growing list that shows increased health problems for people who live near fracking. Those problems include increased incidence of asthma, heart problems, and mental health issues, as well as health, as well as health problems related to pregnancy like birth defects, preterm birth, and low birth weight. These activities unconventional natural gas development and fracking specifically, are having negative impacts on the health of populations living nearby. She says because of this, she thinks fracking should be banned. We know enough to know that we shouldn't be doing this and that it's negatively impacting populations, McAlexander said. Another co-author, Brian Schwartz, professor in the Department of Environmental Health Sciences, in the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, has publicly come out against fracking. McAlexander acknowledged that burning natural gas instead of coal has resulted in widespread air quality gains in the U.S., but said, quote, The way the natural gas industry produces natural gas in this country, it shifts a lot of those health burdens to nearby populations. Nate Wardle, a spokesman for the Pennsylvania Department of Health, said the agency is reviewing the study. The agency is funding a pair of studies to look at the relationship between fracking and health outcomes like cancer, asthma, and poor birth outcomes. It is the department's goal through these studies to better understand both long-term impacts and short-term acute impacts, Wardle said in an email. A spokesman for the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection, asked to comment on the study, said only that the agency would be, quote, reviewing the Department of Health study, which is slated to be completed in December 2022, and that the agency will consider the study and others like it when it revisits its oil and gas regulations in the future. A June 2020 Pennsylvania grand jury report slammed both the DEP and the Health Department for failing to protect the public from the health effects of fracking. Fracking industry groups say they are, quote, safely and responsibly developing the state's natural gas resources while meeting the state's requirements for the industry. Our industry is grounded in advanced scientific research and protecting the health and safety of communities where we live and operate is our highest priority, Marcella Shale Coalition President Dave Spiegelmeyer said in a statement. Reinhardt of the University of Pittsburgh said any negative health outcomes from fracking should be balanced against whatever positive factors the industry brings to those it benefits, like workers or landowners who have leased property for gas drilling. Maybe now they can afford their blood pressure medicines or their cholesterol medicines or smoking cessation aids, Reinhardt said. It could be that the economic benefits from this allow more people to live better lives and be happier and healthier, despite the negative effects of the pollution. Oh, that's infuriating. It's okay if more people have to go to the hospital because of their heart condition, because now they have more money to pay for it. It's a, it's a wonder that some people are allowed the, the, the power that they have. From heart attacks to earthquakes, this piece is published at castanet.net. Monitoring for earthquakes. 
The BC Oil and Gas Commission is beginning work to temporarily place a dense seismic monitoring array between Dawson Creek, no, not that Dawson Creek, and Fort St. John to monitor hydraulic fracturing operations. Chief Operating Officer Ken Paulson said the Commission is the first North American regulatory body to determine fracking can result in low-level induced seismicity. The Commission is very supportive of the deployment of these additional 36 seismic monitors, he said. This deployment will contribute significantly to the growing body of peer-reviewed science that helps us to understand the causes and contributing factors of induced seismic events and assists us in the development of effective mitigation. Earthquakes in the Peace region are nothing new, and some have been connected to the oil and gas collection activity whereby water, chemicals, and sand are injected at high pressure into underground reserves to retrieve oil and gas deposits. Earlier this year, there were calls for a 10 to 15 kilometer fracking exclusion zone around the massive Site C Hydro Dam project, not far from the test site. The study comes two years after the NDP government commissioned a scientific review panel to study fracking after public concerns were expressed. In February 2019, the scientific panel produced a 236-page report, which included assessments of induced seismicity risks in general. That report raised no concerns specific to hydroelectric dams on the Peace River. Quote, We recently completed an independent scientific review of the hydraulic fracturing process in B.C. that found our regulatory framework to be robust, the Ministry of Energy, Mines, and Petroleum Resources said at the time. The report, however, added that the rapid adoption of unconventional oil and gas extraction in BC, such as hydraulic fracturing and a lack of data, make it difficult to quantify the risks, which include many earthquakes, fugitive methane emissions, and water use. The goal of the new project being done in cooperation with the Natural Resources Canada and Calgary-based company Simrock is to increase understanding of induced seismic events in northeast BC. The Commission currently employs a regional seismic array of 20 monitors in the region. The temporary deployment of 36 additional monitors will allow for localized and focused research on a specific area help all the partners better understand the seismicity at a level of detailed resolution not before studied in Canada, the Commission said. The monitors being one kilometer apart in a 6 by 6 kilometer grid will collect seismic data during an upcoming hydraulic fracturing operation by a company working in Tower Lake, about 40 kilometers southeast of Fort St. John. Fracturing activity is scheduled to begin in January 2021, with all monitors expected to be in place this month. The purpose of this experiment is to collect detailed observations of seismic signals associated with hydraulic fracturing at an unprecedented resolution, Natural Resources Canada Project Leader for Induced Seismicity Research, Han Kao, said. Results of this experiment are expected to improve our understanding of the physical process responsible for injecting induced earthquakes that, in turn, can lead to an effective mitigation of possible seismic hazards. Data from the seismic monitors will be shared with landowners and made public, the Commission said. Next up is a piece written by Reed Fraser. This is published at stateimpact.npr.org. A controversial plan for a natural gas well at a steel mill near Pittsburgh has suffered another setback. The Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection said it is ending review of the project after the fracking company behind it lost its local zoning permit in October. New Mexico-based Marion Oil and Gas has been planning on drilling a well at U.S. Steel's Edgar Thompson plant since 2017. Marion's permit from East Pittsburgh Borough expired earlier this year after the company could not gain DEP approval to begin work. 
In October, the borough voted to deny an extension. Without that permit, the DEP now says the project can't move forward and says it's suspending its review of the company's environmental permits unless and until Marion obtains zoning approval from the appropriate government entity to construct and operate the facility. The well has been opposed by some local residents over health and safety concerns. The company says it's reviewing the decision, but still intends to move forward with the project. Quote, This project is an important investment in the Mon Valley, and we, along with our local partners, are committed to seeing it through, said Marion's operations manager, Ryan Davis, in an emailed statement. The decision was cheered by Edith Abeda of North Braddock Residents for Our Future, a group that has opposed the project. In a statement, she said the decision was direct result of community opposition. Quote, The time has come for those on the front lines all across the state to recognize that true power exists when people join together, and standing up to these giants is not impossible, she said. These historic victories should show Marion that they can keep trying, but we will keep winning. And from one battle against the local infrastructure of fracking and oil and gas to another. This one is written by Susan Phillips, and this is published at DelawareCurrents.org. Plans for a new half-billion-dollar liquefied natural gas export terminal on the Delaware River in South Jersey were greenlighted by the Delaware River Basin Commission on Wednesday. But opponents say they will challenge the LNG project in federal court, and they've gained the support of Hollywood stars like Leonardo DiCaprio and Mark Ruffalo, along with climate leaders like Bill McKibben. One of the people who testified at the hearing was Vanessa Keegan, who lives in the small Gloucester County community of Gibbstown. Keegan and her boyfriend, who have three sons between them and work in the restaurant industry, saved up enough to buy their home just a few blocks away from the planned export terminal more than a year ago. She learned about the terminal from a neighbor. We're killing our planet. That's the big existential thing, said Keegan who since the pandemic quit her job so she could help with remote learning for her three-year-old son and ten-year-old niece. But me personally, you're putting my family in danger. If an accident happens with liquefied natural gas, we don't get to show up the next day and say, look, I told you so. We won't be here. My neighbors won't be here. This neighborhood will not be here. That's terrifying. Pennsylvania shale gas is so abundant and cheap right now. Producers need to find new markets overseas. The developer of the project, Delaware River Partners, a subsidiary of New Fortress Energy, wants to build the export terminal on the site of a former DuPont dynamite manufacturing plant. Oh good, put a new toxic plant on the site of an old toxic plant. The overall plan would ship gas from Pennsylvania's Marcellus Shale to a new liquefaction plant in Bradford County, where refrigeration units would chill it to negative 260 degrees Fahrenheit to turn it into a liquid. The part of the plan that scares a lot of people like Keegan is the transport. LNG would be shipped 200 miles south down the I-95 corridor by truck and or rail through some of the most densely populated areas of the East Coast to Gibbstown. Trucks or rail cars full of flammable liquefied natural gas would roll about a block and a half away from Keegan's home. The company secured a special permit from the Federal Pipeline Hazardous Materials Safety Administration to move the LNG by rail. The permit allows two 100-car trains to transport the gas each day. It's the longest permitted LNG rail route in the country because until recently, using trains to transport LNG required that rarely issued special permit. On a recent day, Keegan stood on her porch and pointed to the train tracks that would be used to transport the LNG. So they want special permits to transport them right there, she said. That train track you could skip on down to in about a minute and a half. 
and that terrifies me. Last summer, the Trump administration issued an executive order that now allows LNG by rail through the normal permitting process. Fifteen state attorneys general, including those in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware, challenged the move, saying it put people's lives at risk. We're going to court because our families expect our government to put their safety first, not put them in harm's way, California Attorney General Xavier Becerra said in a statement. If only the Trump administration spent as much time trying to solve our current public health crisis as it does creating new public health hazards. Becerra is now President-elect Joe Biden's nominee for Health and Human Services Secretary. The decision before the Delaware River Basin Commission, a multi-state body, made up of the governors of New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware, along with a federal representative, focuses on the dock, dredging, and some on-land infrastructure for the project. The Delaware Riverkeeper Network has challenged a number of state and federal permits for the project, including those issued by the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. DRN's Tracy Carluccio said the group will file a federal challenge to the commission's decision. She said that the site already has high, is highly contaminated and that dredging and construction will churn up more toxins like PCBs. In addition to the rail car permits, a permit issued by the Army Corps of Engineers outlines a plan to transport the gas using 300 to 400 trucks a day which would drive by a daycare center that sits right at the company gate. The Gloucester County Improvement Authority has plans to build a new bypass from nearby Route 44 to divert all the new truck traffic from the center of Gibbstown. New Fortress Energy and Delaware River Partners did not respond to multiple requests for interviews and would not confirm details of their plans. Gibbstown sits along one of the most industrialized sections of the Delaware River. It's directly across from the Philadelphia International Airport, and it borders the PBF Energy Refinery in Paulsboro to the north. In the late 19th century, DuPont built a dynamite factory along the river. By the 1920s, it was the world's largest explosives manufacturer, and Gibbstown's fortunes rose and fell with the now-shuttered DuPont plant. Today, many of the town's storefronts are boarded up. The LNG terminal project has the support of some powerful state lawmakers and building trade unions. Keegan said a lot of her neighbors want to see the site redeveloped. It seems to be very split, she said. Half of the people have seemed to be like, no, it's tax money into the town. Natural gas is the cleanest of the fossil fuels. You're overreacting. And the other half feel like I do, like our safety is not worth the money. At the end of the day, if we're not here, what does the tax money matter? Keegan worries that because transporting LNG by rail is so new, it's untested. Opponents say that because it involves a special permit, it's unclear whether the standards would be equivalent to the requirements for trains permitted under the new guidelines set by Trump's executive order. Ray Menser, a chemical engineer who teaches chemical process safety at Purdue University, so the containers would have to have high nickel content to withstand cryogenic conditions. If there were a leak, he said, the LNG would catch fire, but not explode. It's not flammable until it's vaporized, but it's going to be vaporized pretty darn quickly, and then it's going to seek an ignition source, he said. Believe me, it will find an ignition source pretty darn readily. Menser spent his career working on LNG projects for ExxonMobil, which primarily meant shipping containers. If I was a company permitting this, I would be studying very carefully where my LNG trucks were going to run, he said. I would not allow them to run through populated areas, just in case the unthinkable were to happen. If I was at a town meeting and I lived there, I would want to know, just what routes are you going to use? Menser said the specially designed containers that transport hydrocarbons across the country every day have a good safety record, but transporting the gas through densely populated areas increases risk if there is a leak. Vanessa Keegan said that in addition to worrying about her family's safety, 
She thinks fossil fuel projects like these should be abandoned in favor of renewables like wind or solar power. As soon as she and her boyfriend bought their house, they put solar panels on their garage roof. I don't understand how you can look at the LNG product project and say, yes, this is the way we need to go, said Keegan. Wind power is where it's at. If we switched our focus, the amount of change that could be made, it would be mind-blowing. The Gibstown Export Terminal is just one of many fossil fuel infrastructure projects that state and national regulatory agencies keep greenlighting despite growing evidence of an out-of-control climate, more wildfires, worsening storms, droughts, and floods. Arvind Ravi Kumar, who teaches energy and climate policy at Harrisburg University, said the conversion of coal power plants to natural gas has helped cut carbon emissions worldwide. But countries have a long way to go to reach the targeted goals of the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, where they promised to cap global warming at 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Quote, The infrastructure that we're building now today will last for decades, he said. The question is, is that compatible with our long-term targets? I don't think it is. Right now, Ravi Kumar said investors in projects like the Gibstown Terminal are counting on fossil fuel dependency for decades to come. But that could be changing. One of the original customers for the LNG exports was in Ireland. Recently, the Irish High Court blocked the construction of an import terminal in the Shannon Estuary, there that was backed by the new Fortress Energy. Ireland's new coalition government, which includes the Green Party, opposes fracked gas imports from the United States. Similarly, a French company backed out of a plan to import American shale gas after pressure from campaigners who said it contradicted the country's climate goals. Meanwhile, Ravi Kumar said there's a market push toward renewables. Renewables are getting cheaper and cheaper every day, he said. Battery storage is getting cheaper every day. If the overseas export terminal gets built, none of the gas will go to power New Jersey homes. Instead, the state is promoting a large coastal wind farm off Atlantic City, which will help Jersey reach its goal of all renewables by 2050. The state recently announced its plans to become the, quote, backbone for wind energy transmission for the East Coast. And finally, one more story for this episode. And... This has been inevitable for a long time, for at least as long as since I started this podcast. Because as you know, if you've listened to other episodes, I've been reading from the Compendium of Scientific, Medical, and Media Findings Demonstrating Risks and Harms of Fracking, 6th edition, which came out in June of 2019. What has been inevitable ever since I started was that a 7th edition would come out. I mean, I suppose it's not entirely inevitable. The groups that are that are backing this, the uh, Concerned Health Professionals of New York and Physicians for Social Responsibility, could have decided, hmm, you know, the 6th edition was enough and, and gone along their way and done something else. Uh, but alas, as I expected... They have not, and they have now released the 7th edition. So that begs the question for me, what to do? I'll get back to that later. Here's a piece published at commondreams.org, and this is a press release. Uh, contact Caitlin McNamee. New analysis of fracking science finds grave health, environmental justice, and climate impacts. A new report from leading scientists, doctors, and environmental experts examining nearly 2,000 academic studies, government reports, and investigative reporting finds that drilling, fracking, and the entire fracked oil and gas cycle impose grave harms to human health and well-being and that those problems cannot be mitigated. Today, concerned health professionals of New York and Physicians for Social Responsibility released the Compendium 
of scientific, medical, and media findings demonstrating risks and harms of fracking, 7th edition, which tracks, assembles, and analyzes key trends in the rapidly growing body of evidence about health, climate, and environmental justice consequences of drilling, fracking, and associated infrastructure. Overwhelmingly, evidence demonstrates that these activities are dangerous to public health, the environment, and the climate, and that there are fundamental problems with the entire life cycle of operations associated with fracking. Emerging science also shows that fracking is a grave environmental justice issue, with communities of color, indigenous people, and impoverished communities bearing disproportionate harm. The compendium reviews nearly 2,000 academic studies, government reports, and investigations of data by journalists about the environmental and health impacts of drilling and fracking. It is increasingly important to consider the whole body of evidence and identify key trends. That's what the compendium uniquely does, allowing the public, elected officials, and regulators to consider the whole body of evidence, identify key trends, and utilize important new research as it appears, promoting health and potentially saving lives. Sandra Steingraber, PhD, co-founder of Concerned Health Professionals of New York and an author of the compendium, said, quote, Our knowledge about the dangers of fracking is now both broad and deep. Altogether, thousands of scientific studies, reports, and investigations show us that extracting oil and gas by shattering the nation's bedrock with water and chemicals creates fundamental, intrinsic, unfixable problems. Toxic pollution, water contamination, earthquakes, radioactive releases, and methane emissions follow fracking wherever it goes. Some of these problems get worse after depleted wells are abandoned and no set of regulations is capable of preventing harm. With hundreds of new peer-reviewed scientific studies published in the past year alone, several trends in the evidence have been increasingly well documented, among more than a dozen emerging trends. Fracking poses serious health harms to people, especially those living in proximity, not only to drilling and fracking, but also to associated infrastructure like compressor stations and gas-fired power plants. Fracking raises human rights and environmental justice issues, disproportionately affecting people of color and low-income communities. Health problems associated with fracked gas include cancers, asthma, respiratory distress, rashes, heart problems, and mental health problems. Multiple studies of pregnant women living near fracking operations across the nation show impairments to infant health, including birth defects, preterm birth, and low birth weight. Preterm birth and low birth weight are the leading causes of infant death in the United States. Fracking and natural gas are incompatible with climate solutions. Pediatrician Edward Kettier MDFAAP of Physicians for Social Responsibility, Pennsylvania, said, quote, The Fracking Science Compendium is an essential resource for health professionals like myself who are addressing how terribly damaging fracking is to the health of our patients in the communities we live in. Dozens of peer-reviewed studies contained in the compendium indicate clearly that women and children are most vulnerable to the impacts of pollution coming off every piece of fracking infrastructure. As a pediatrician, I'm very concerned that children bear the greatest burden of all as they face cradle-to-grave health impacts from health-damaging chemicals and emissions, to say nothing of the stability of the planet's climate system, which we all depend on. It is clear from this report that fracking has never been done safely anywhere. It is inherently dirty and dangerous, and industry rules and government regulations can't fix that fact. These health problems are borne disproportionately by communities of color and impoverished communities. Significant evidence now makes clear that fracking is a significant and growing environmental injustice. 
Laura Dagley, BSNRN of Physicians for Social Responsibility in Pennsylvania, said, quote, As a nurse and PSR staffer, I advocate for the health of my communities. Through my work, I have met many people whose lives are negatively impacted by fracking. From seeing the stress that fracking infrastructure has brought to their daily lives, to hearing of many visits to the doctor managing new asthma exacerbation or skin rashes, to feeling their fear as their neighbor's children suffer from a rare cancer, I am reminded of the real people behind the data. With fracking literally in their backyards, many of these individuals struggle to have their voices heard. They do not have the time, money, or numbers in their rural communities to draw attention to the negative toll fracking is taking on their lives. The compendium compiles a large body of data demonstrating fracking's harm and succinctly summarizes the research and reports. It is a powerful tool to show policymakers the evidence that fracking is harming people. At a broader scale, the evidence is overwhelming that fracking is significantly exacerbating climate change and is responsible for the current surge in global levels of methane, a greenhouse gas 86 times more potent at trapping heat than carbon dioxide over a 20-year period. Methane escapes into the atmosphere all along the gas extraction, processing, and distribution system at a significant rate that exceeds earlier estimates by a factor of 2 to 3 and in ways that cannot be mitigated or eliminated through regulations. Kathleen Nolan, MD, MSL of Physicians for Social Responsibility and Concerned Health Professionals of New York, said, quote, Detailed and comprehensive research now demonstrates decisively that fracking and its related activities release significant amounts of methane into the atmosphere, making the process calamitous for climate change. Science is telling us that drilling and fracking are incompatible with any meaningful effort to mitigate carbon emissions, and that to curb global warming most quickly, we need to stop permitting and subsidizing fracking. Just as we have learned to give up smoking to protect our lungs, we must give up fracking to protect our atmosphere, the air that we all breathe. From the main findings of the compendium, quote, As fracking operations in the United States and abroad have increased in frequency, size, and intensity, a significant body of evidence has emerged to demonstrate that these activities are dangerous in ways that cannot be mitigated through regulation. Threats include detrimental impacts on water, air, climate stability, public health, farming, property values, and economic vitality. Or vitality. Our examination uncovered no evidence that fracking can be practiced in a manner that does not threaten human health directly and without imperiling climate stability upon which public health depends. And so there you have it. There I have it, I guess. Seventh edition of the Compendium of Scientific, Medical, and Media Findings Demonstrating Risks and Harms of Fracking. Seventh edition. So, what's a person to do when they've been reading through the sixth edition? And they're uh, only on page 286 of a, a 300 and and 80 page document hmm maybe it's not quite 380 it's close it's 350 so i'm gonna have to decide what to do before i record the next episode what i believe i will do if the seventh edition follows the same format of the sixth edition i'll try to find out where i'm at I mean, I'm, I'm at uh, a section called Gas Storage. So if I can pick up in the 7th edition, somewhere around page 300, with Gas Storage, I'll continue to read forward in the compendium. And then when I'm done, if the 8th edition isn't out yet by then, I'll decide how to go back and 
capture all of the new information in the seventh edition in the earlier sections. So more to come on my uh, continued efforts to get through this document, to get this document in recorded form, in a form that you all can sit back and listen to and learn from. So stay tuned for the next episode. That'll wrap up this episode of Frack You Very Much, a fracking terrible podcast. You can follow on Twitter at FYVM Show. You can go to frackyouverymuch.com where you'll find links to send me a message. Send me a uh, message there or make a donation to keep this podcast free and independent. You can also listen to this podcast played 24-7, not by itself, but mixed in with all the other podcasts that I do and some extra audio thrown in there as well. All that happens over on movingtrainradio.com. Here is Dave Drywitz and Marco Benevento with Freaking Frack. Thanks for listening.